We'll hear argument first today in case 08192, Abu Hawa versus United States. Mr. Sweenivasan. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. A person who purchases a small quantity of drugs for his own personal use commits a misdemeanor, not a felony. The language of Section 843B does not transform that person into a felon if he uses a phone in obtaining his drugs rather than doing so strictly face-to-face. I'd like to begin with the text of the statute before turning to the textual history and the statutory context. The language of Section 843B bars the use of a phone in committing, in facilitating, or in causing a drug felony. That language presupposes someone who is causing, facilitating, or committing a drug felony. And with respect to such a person, it makes them guilty of an additional offense in the nature of an aggravated offense if they use a phone in their committing, facilitating, or causing a drug felony. Can you be specific about who those persons would be? You say not a misdemeanor drug user. So who would be caught in the 843B? It would depend on which prong you're referring to, Justice Ginsburg. The the committing prong refers to persons who are committing the underlying drug felony. And the facilitating prong would refer to persons who are aiding or abetting the underlying drug Well, suppose you had the girlfriend uh, phone and say, my boyfriend needs drugs, meet him at the corner of 3rd and Main. Uh, What crime does the girlfriend commit? It seems to me uh, that it's pretty clear that she's under uh, 843B facilitating. She she may. It seems to me that she may then uh, have committed a felony, and yet it, it's, it seems to me that her culpability is certainly no, no greater if you're talking about your, the policy of your statute than the, than the man that uses the drugs. Well, I think I'm speaking first and foremost about the terms of the statute, Justice Kennedy, and to the extent she fits within the terms of the statute, it will be because she doesn't benefit from the buyer-seller rule. The, buy, the buyer-seller rule establishes that buyers of drugs aren't aiders or abettors of the distribution of drugs. And equivalently, they wouldn't be treated as facilitators of the distribution of drugs. Well, now, maybe maybe Justice Ginsburg would like some further illustration, but I thought that that was one illustration in answer to her question. Yes, I would like to. Who does this target? I mean, the girlfriend is a, is a good law school exam type question, but in the real world, who is covered? Well, I think the classic case of somebody under the facilitating prong would be the classic aider and abetter. For example, a lookout. If there were a lookout on the scene of a drug transaction and they used a communication facility to communicate with the distributor to let them know that buyers were arriving or that law enforcement was in the neighborhood and the person not to refrain from engaging the transaction for the time being, that would be the sort of person that comes within 18 U.S.C. 2 as an aider or a better of drug distribution and also would come within 843B as a facilitator of drug distribution. The buyer-seller rule would prohibit the, the prosecution of a buyer on the theory that the buyer aided and, abetter, aided and abetted the seller, but I don't see why it applies here. This is not a situation like that. This is a different crime, using a, a communication facility in facilitating the commission of a felony. Well, it deals with use of a communication facility, but it deals with use of a communication facility only with respect to persons that are committing, facilitating, or causing a drug felony. What is the, what I was going to, what is the purpose of, of saying who uses uh, a communica- communications facility? Is that purely a jurisdictional hook? No, I don't think it's a jurisdictional hook. The, the, there would already be federal jurisdiction by virtue of the underlying felony. And so what Congress was concerned with in penalizing the use of a phone as in the nature of an aggravated offense is that I think Congress thought that phones were being used to make detection of drug trafficking more difficult. And in particular, at the level of someone who's at the top of the food chain and in the architecture of, of a drug distribution chain, that person was able to avoid detection because they never came into physical contact with drugs and they didn't come into physical contact with the persons who were engaging the transaction on the street. You keep talking about phones, and you began by saying this covers phones, but this was, uh, language was added, what, 1970? Right. Well, there weren't cell phones of the kind you have now. I I think this was directed at the uh, beepers, right, when those were around then, or or 
land-based phones or something like that. And, and the technology has so expanded that the reach of the statute has so expanded in a way that brings in a lot more casual users than was the case before. And I, I just don't know how that issue of statutory interpretation is supposed to be resolved. Assuming I'm right that the technology has dramatically expanded the reach of the statute, even if you think it's covered by its terms, how, how is that issue addressed? What's the well, right answer there? Is it because the terms still cover it, that's the, the, the breadth has expanded, or because this is something new technologically that the statute shouldn't be construed that broadly? No, I, I don't. Our argument doesn't depend on assuming that cell phone usage was significant in the, in the 1970s. Even in 1970, the statute would exclude from its sweep buyers of drugs. Well, I know, but let, let's assume I don't agree. Uh, Let's assume I agree with that only in the context of the 1970s uh, technology. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the answer then? Well, if you agree with it, it reminds me of these old hypotheticals. You know, before there were automobiles, you had to have someone with a lantern walk in front of your carriage, and they don't change the law, and it still turns out to be the law when you're driving your car. But it doesn't make any sense. But I mean, is there a case of ours that says what to do in that case, in, in such a situation of statutory construction? No, I'm not aware of a case that speaks directly to that question, Mr. Chief Justice, but our argument doesn't depend on that logic. Because even in 1970, certainly land lines were well in use. And in fact, the indications are that that's what Congress was principally concerned with in this, in this statute. And even, and at that time, we would make the argument just as now, a person who used a telephone in buying drugs for personal use wouldn't come within the ambit of the provision. Because the text of the provision goes to someone who uses a phone in committing, in facilitating, or in causing the commission of a drug felony. And so if you're not someone who's facilitating the commission of a drug felony in the first place, then you can't be charged as using a phone in facilitating a drug felony. And the reason that a buyer for personal use, whether we're talking about 1970 or now, wouldn't be considered a person who is using a phone in facilitating a drug felony is because of the buyer-seller rule. Buyers aren't aiders and abettors of the felony distribution, and by the same token, they shouldn't be considered facilitators of felony distribution. Your, your argument uh, sort of assumes, more than sort of assumes, it assumes that facilitating is the same as aiding and abetting. You know, if they meant aiding and abetting, it's a, it's a classic uh, criminal law term. Uh, they could have said aiding and abetting. They, they didn't. They used a different term, facilitating. Why? Why should I think facilitating means aiding and abetting? For, for several reasons, Your Honor. First, their definitional equivalence. Black's Law Dictionary defines facilitating as an act of aiding or helping or making easier, and it in turn defines aiding and abetting as to facilitate the commission of the crime. So they mean the very same thing. And I don't think there's anything talismanic about the particular formulation aiding and abetting. And in fact, the Court established that in its opinion in Jabardi. That statute dealt with the Mann Act, which barred transporting a woman for purposes of engaging in immoral acts and, or aiding or assisting in that transportation or causing the transportation. So that statute well, used a different I mean, formulation. It's natural to view the woman in that situation more as a victim than as someone facilitating the crime. Well, I'm I, not sure that would extend to your case. Well, I don't know that the, the, the opinion doesn't stand on the rationale that the woman would be a victim. It stands on the rationale that Congress wanted to define the primary offense, which is transporting. Well, but that was the same word. That was transporting in both instances. Here, you have purchase, one, facilitating with a telephone, two. That's different. Well, it, does, it doesn't use the word um, purchase with respect to Justice Kennedy. It uses the word commit, facilitate, or cause. Those are the three persons who come within Section 843B. And in precisely parallel fashion, under 18 U.S.C. 2, the general aider or better provision, that provision applies to persons who commit uh, the underlying offense, who aid or abet the underlying offense, or who cause the underlying offense. And that precisely parallel structure reinforces that facilitating in 843B serves the same purpose and means the same thing as aiding or abetting and the other words that apply in Section Well, well I'll think about it, but I, I, I think your uh, uh, Gabardi uh, does involve one statute one act, transportation. This involves two. The underlying felony is the purchase or, or possession. Uh, and then the second statute is use of the telephone. So I, 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 I'll think about it, but I, I don't think it already works. I, I don't think that's a distinction that ultimately makes a difference, Justice Kennedy, for the following reason. This statute does deal both with someone who is involved in the underlying felony 
and use of the phone on top of that. But it's in the nature of an aggravated offense. It presupposes somebody who is committing, causing, or facilitating the underlying drug offense, and then it makes them guilty of an aggravated offense if they use a phone in the course of doing so. So the first question you'd have to ask is whether the person is committing, facilitating, or causing the drug felony in the first place. And if I could use one hypothetical statute to illustrate that, if this statute, instead of saying facilitating, dealt by terms with use of a phone in aiding or abetting a drug felony, you would still have use of the phone in addition to the underlying drug felony. But the first question I think one would ask in looking at that provision is whether the person who's accused of violating the law were aiding or abetting a drug felony. What other, what other the statute does not just apply to uh, um, facilitating a drug offense. It, it applies to any of the uh, felonies covered by uh, subchapter 2 of, of the relevant chapter. Uh, I agree. It seems a little strange to have what is a misdemeanor uh, by a buyer converted into a, into a felony uh, just by use of the phone. What other situations under other uh, felony provisions uh, would arise that uh, uh, create a similar uh, oddity? Do you have any in mind? I don't know that there are other provisions that would create a similar oddity. I think this one is particularly anomalous, the, uh, the use of the statute to penalize somebody who otherwise would be a misdemeanor except that they use a phone in the course of the purchase for personal use. The classic situations in which the statute does apply, which aren't anomalous because they make sense given what Congress had in mind, would be the use of a phone to to facilitate uh, drug distribution. If someone were a lookout again or if someone were a trafficker and they instructed, for example, um, retail sellers where to go to pick up uh, stock uh, stockhouse. This really isn't the transformation of a misdemeanor uh, into a felony. It's a separate, uh, separate activity uh, and an activity that facilitates the commission of a crime. It's much easier to carry out your drug distribution business if people are calling you on their cell phones than if they have to uh, meet you in person or call from a, a landline. Well, uh, two steps to, to respond to that question, Mr. Chief Justice. First, in terms of whether it makes it easier, I think one could say the very same thing in an aiding or abetting prosecution. Aiding or abetting means the same thing as facilitating. And so you could make the argument, I think, that buying drugs and engaging in the sorts of actions that naturally accompany the purchasing enterprise make the sale easier, including directing where the sale is going to occur and things like that. But we know already that buyers of drugs aren't considered aiders and abettors of drugs for purposes of liability under 18 U.S.C. 2. And I think by the same token, they shouldn't be considered facilitators of drugs for purposes of eight, Section 843B. What if with the, respect — What if the, um, the defendant — what if the, the, the defendant who's a buyer uh, of a quantity for personal use does more than simply purchase the drugs? What if information is communicated in the telephone conversation that makes it uh, easier for the transaction to take place or less, uh, less likely that, there's, that the person is going to be apprehended? Would that person fall within the statute? I don't think so, Justice Alito. I probably have to know more about exactly what they did. But if, it's a nor- if what they did is a normal incident of purchasing, uh, then I think it would fall within the buyer-seller rule. Otherwise, I think the government under an 18 U.S.C. 2 prosecution for aider and a better liability could make precisely the same sorts of arguments. The government could argue, for example, that this person didn't just buy drugs. They instigated the purchase because they made the first phone call. They didn't accept the first phone call. They made the first phone call. And so that takes them outside the buyer-seller rule. But I don't think that argument would work under 18 U.S.C. 2 because making the first phone call is a normal incident of purchasing. And, of course, as someone who purchases drugs for personal use is going to want to take measures to make sure that the purchase goes through. Their ultimate objective is to get their hands on the drugs. This, so this statute doesn't, it doesn't differentiate between buyer and seller in terms of who makes the call. I gather the purchaser for his or her own use would be just as susceptible to this statute if the dealer called and said, I've got a gram of cocaine, I know you're interested in having it. That's, that's right, Justice Ginsburg. It would apply equally in that situation. And from our perspective, that points up even more the anomaly in applying it to this factual context. And that would equally be the case under 18 U.S.C. 2. One could draw distinctions between who makes the initial phone call and other sorts of normal incidents of the purchasing enterprise. 
But I don't think, Justice Alito, that because someone engages in, dr- in, in, in a transaction in a way that makes it particularly likely that the purchase is going to be successful, that that alone would take you outside the buyer-seller rule. What would happen in a situation where the uh, person who buys the drug is guilty of, of a felony? Uh, it's an instance of felony possession. Um, wouldn't the application of your understanding of the buyer-seller rule in that situation lead to the conclusion that even that person could not be convicted under this statute for facilitating the commission of the felony of sale? No, I don't think so, because the buyer-seller rule deals with the circumstance in which the way the person is, is associated with a felony is they're associated with the distributor's felony. And so what the buyer-seller rule says is that a buyer isn't an aider and a better of the seller's distribution, and I think by the same token shouldn't be associated with the seller's facilitation. But in your hypothetical, where the buyer himself is committing a felony, because his possession, because of certain characteristics associated with it, make it a felony, the buyer himself would be committing a felony. Well, that, so may, the, that may be true, but the buyer there still could not, under your theory, be convicted of facilitating the seller's felony, of selling the drugs. Th- right. Couldn't be convicted of facilitating the seller's felony, but would fall within the ambit of Section 843B in any event, because they would have used the phone in connection with their own felony. Your uh, gloss on the statute makes gives rise to some difficult questions of proof. I mean, what if it's, I don't know, 10 pounds of something, and the guy says, well, I was just buying in bulk for personal use, you know, like a Costco drug dealer? Well, I, <laughs> I, I don't know about that, but, but I think what I do know is that it doesn't create any greater problems of application than already exist under the federal drug laws, because the federal drug laws bar both possession for personal use under the Simple Possession Statute, Section 844, and possession with, in- with intent to distribute under 841. And so courts and juries and the government already have to make those sorts of decisions, and I don't know that they've been particularly difficult to make. They have to draw a distinction between the sorts of quantities and other aspects of the offense that bring it within the possession with int- intent to distri- distribute um, land or whether the possession is of such a small qu- quantity and there aren't other associated characteristics of the offense that make it possession uh, for purposes of personal use. That distinction is one that's already embedded in the fabric of the drug laws, and we're just applying the same distinction for purposes of this statute. I don't think we're making it any more complicated than it already is. If, in, in, if the in, government were to prevail here, I assume that it would then, as a result, have a much larger, more expansive discretion in charging and in plea bargaining and, and et cetera. Um, other than the rule of lenity, is there anything in our cases that indicates that we should be cautious about giving the government that authority and so that that's an aid in our interpretation? Or is that just all within the rule of lenity? Well, it's, it's definitely within uh, the rule of lenity, and I think that's the principal place other to be found. And I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I have a background principle that one would bring to bear on that, other than the, the normal tools of statutory con- construction that I've already uh, talked about in the first place, which is you look at the text and you look at the statutory history and you look at the statutory context. No background principles either way on granting the prosecutor's uh, vast discretion in charging? Well, I think as it, as, as, as it applies to statutory interpretation. Well, I think as a general rule, we ought to be circumspect about doing that. My, my understanding is that circumspection is given voice through the rule of lenity. But a background principle of particular applicability here is, is the statutory history. Because is, I think uh, is the statutory history, and I'm speaking now in terms of the <coughs> statutory text, not legislative history, but the history of the enacted statutory text. And what that bears on is not the word facilitating, which is what the buyer-seller rule particularly pertains to, but the word felony, which is another word in the text of the statute. And so Congress could have barred the use of a phone in connection with any drug offense, including a drug misdemeanor. But Congress pointedly didn't do so. It barred the use of a phone in connection only with a drug felony. And because it chose to limit the offense to use of a phone in connection with a drug felony, the effect is to exclude from the purview of the statute use of a phone in connection with a drug misdemeanor. That was a change in 1970, wasn't it? Wasn't the text offense originally, and then Congress changed it to felony? That's right, Justice Ginsburg. Before the Controlled Substances Act, the communication facility provision barred the use of a phone in connection with any drug offense. And in 1970, in the Controlled Substances Act, 
Congress narrowed its reach to encompass only use of a phone in connection with a drug felony. So it excluded use of a phone in connection with a drug misdemeanor. And that's significant in two respects. One is even without reference to the statutory context of the 1970 Controlled Substances Act, it's significant because Congress excluded use of a phone in connection with a drug misdemeanor. Petitioner used a phone in connection with his misdemeanor simple possession. But under the government's argument, the very same conduct by the very same person would be brought back into the fold of the statute, even though Congress excluded it. It would be brought back in the fold of the statute by recasting it as facilitating the dealer's felony. And the mode of analysis that the Court used in Jabari and the mode of analysis that underlies the buyer-seller rule to begin with would, would lead us not to infer that Congress would have intended that result. But in terms of the history and the statutory context, which you were alluding to, Justice Ginsburg, is significant for that reason as well, because the context in which Congress narrowed the reach of Section 843B so that it only encompasses facilitation of a felony and not facilitation of a misdemeanor is one in which Congress in the 1970 Act sought to extend leniency and afford a chance at rehabilitation to drug users. And that's manifested not in legislative history but in the statutory text itself, because Congress penalized simple possession for personal use as a misdemeanor, whereas the receipt of drugs previously was a felony, regardless of the purpose of the possession, whether it was for use or for distribution. But Congress did more than that, because in immediately adjacent provisions to the one in which it narrowed simple possession to a misdemeanor, it also enacted a provision which is now found in 18 U.S.C. 3607, which allowed a simple possessor who is a first-time offender to avoid any conviction at all if they successfully complete a period of probation. And Congress went further still, because it also enacted in another adjacent provision further relief for a first-time simple possessor who is under the age of 21. With respect to that person, it allowed the person to obtain a complete expungement of the criminal records uh, associated with the arrest. So you would have lost this case before 1970 because the the incongruity on which you rely uh, didn't exist then? Yeah, before 1970, it would have been a very difficult climb because not only because the communication facility applied to any drug offense, but because simple possession wasn't a misdemeanor. Right. So the, the scope of this language was changed sub silentio? It, was, it wasn't sub silentio. It was explicit. But this language, facilitating covered purchasers using a telephone, under your theory, before 1970, but not after 1970, because of the changes in some other section? No. Well, it's in part because of the changes in this section. This section changed from any offense to felony. So it's the text of this section itself. And the buyer-seller rule equally applied in before 1970. It's just before 1970, you wouldn't have had to show that the buyer was associated with the seller's felony because the buyer was associated with his own offense. And that was enough because at that point, the buyer's offense was a felony and the the law, Section 843B, didn't care whether it was a felony because it applied to any drug offense. It's only after 1970 that this distinction, distinction becomes important because after 1970, it's clear that a buyer for personal use doesn't use a phone in committing a drug felony. What he's committing is a drug misdemeanor. So you have to find some way, if you're the government, to make him associated with a drug felony. And well, the no, way that, that arises — that, that question goes to whether or not the distribution was a felony. Right, which is the only avenue available after 1970. There was a different avenue available before 1970, because before 1970, a purchaser of drugs would, if they used a phone in connection with their purchase, would have used a phone in connection with a drug offense. And now the statute is different in two respects. One, it only covers use of a phone in connection with a drug felony. And two, in another provision, Congress narrowed the the simple possession offense from a a felony to a misdemeanor. And Congress did so with respect to the historical context. In immediately adjacent provision, it narrowed uh, 843B in an immediately adjacent provision to the one in which it provided that a simple possessor could avoid any conviction at all, and the one in which it provided that a youthful offender could obtain a complete expungement of its records. But you you didn't — I haven't heard you question so far the government's rationale. The reason Congress did this is it's more difficult to detect a drug deal when it's by telephone than if it were an encounter on the street or in a — an apartment? You have not questioned that. No, we, we don't question that, Your Honor, but I'd like to make uh, two points with respect to that. 
First of all, it may be more difficult. The use of the telephone may be more difficult, and that may be the animating purpose uh, that Congress sought to address through this provision. But that purpose is substantially served even in the context of this case. I, I, don't, because I don't understand what you think. The use of a phone may be more difficult? Use of a phone may make detection more difficult. Uh, and that, that may be the animating purpose. Excuse me. That may have been the animating purpose behind the enactment of this provision. But that purpose is substantially served, even if you accept our understanding of the statute on the facts of this case, because the seller comes squarely within the terms of Section 843B. So because the seller comes within the terms of Section 843B, the statute is already operating against the seller's use of a telephone. The question in our case is whether the buyer also comes within the ambit of Section 843B. And because Section 843B presupposes someone who is committing, facilitating, or committing a drug felony, the buyer doesn't come within the reach of Section 843B because he's not committing, causing, or facilitating a drug felony in the first place. The seller may be, but the buyer's not. The statutory purposes are still served by virtue of penalizing the seller. If the Court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time for rebuttal. Thank you, Counsel. <clears throat> Mr. Miller? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Section 843B prohibits the use of a communication facility in causing or facilitating the commission of any act constituting a felony under the Controlled Substances Act. The Court of Appeals correctly held that the statute is violated when a person uses a communication facility, such as a telephone, to purchase controlled substances unlawfully. A call to order drugs both causes and facilitates a felony distribution of drugs. There is no basis in the statute for creating an exemption for people who uh, facilitate or cause felony distributions by purchasing drugs for their own personal use. So two people across the park, and they know there's a drug dealer on the other side, the one waves and uh, the dealer comes over, the other calls on the cell phone and the dealer comes over, the other gets four more years? Uh, the, the phone the, user gets four more years. The, the, the phone, year, phone user is exposed to four more years. There's no mandatory minimum. And well, if he calls three times, he's exposed to 12 more years, right? Th that's right. Uh, Congress, I mean, and th those two cases are different, and Congress made the judgment. Not, not just that, he gets a felony on his record. Before that, it would have had just a misdemeanor, right? The, that's right. Uh, and and does, the call, does the call have to be completed? I mean, if he gets an answer, say, your call is important to us, but we're serving some <laughs> other. Uh, <laughs> If the call, I mean, the, the statute requires that the communication facility be used, and if the call doesn't actually go through, uh, it would be difficult to see how you would use the. But if he leaves a message, uh, if he leaves a message, and the message in some way causes or facilitates uh, a felony drug distribution, then yes, he's used the communication facility. In this case, we have two separate episodes, each involving one gram of cocaine. That's correct. And there were a total of seven phone calls? Uh, the, there were six. The, the government dismissed one of the counts. There were six uh, counts that went to trial, six phone calls. So that would be an exposure? Of, of, of 24 years. 20, uh, 24 years for the one gram of cocaine on two occasions. Do you agree that it doesn't make any difference? Who initiates the call? That is, if the seller says, seller calls the buyer and says, I understand that you are in the market for one gram of cocaine, I'll sell it to you. Is the buyer similarly subject to this statute? Just getting that call by itself wouldn't subject someone to the statute. But if you get the call and then engage in a conversation yes, with the yes. dealer where you are using uh, the telephone, yeah, we're assuming the purchase is made in either case. Yes. So, but you're saying it doesn't matter who initiates the call. That, that's right. Uh, yeah, so what, what do you do about the case that I find pretty close to what we have here is, is Rewas versus United States, which involved a statute that prohibited interstate travel with the intent to, quote, promote, manage, establish, carry on, or facilitate certain kinds of illegal activities, one of which would have been gambling. And we said the ordinary meaning of this language suggests that the traveler's purpose must involve more than the desire to patronize the illegal activity. Well, so it wouldn't have been facilitating a gambling operation simply to be engaging in interstate travel for the purpose of playing the tables. 
I think there are a couple answers to that, Your Honor. First, Ruiz, as you say, was construing the Travel Act. It, it didn't focus on the word facilitate, and it certainly didn't set out a general oh, theory oh, of what. Oh, certainly focused on the word facilitate. That was the whole purpose of that passage. We, it said, uh, it quoted, promote, manage, establish, carry on, or facilitate. And the ordinary meaning of this language suggests that the traveler's purpose must involve more than the desire to patronize the illegal activity. That's right. And, and as, as uh, indicated by the passage uh, you just quoted, the, the focus of the Court there was on the traveler's purpose. Uh, the Travel Act requires intent. Uh, Section 843B is different in that it's satisfied by knowingly or intentionally using a phone. So the Court in Ruiz said, uh, quite reasonably, that uh, someone whose only purpose uh, is to be a customer uh, of an unlawful enterprise doesn't have uh, the intent uh, to facilitate. And, and significantly, the, although the Court's quotation of the statute ends at facilitate, it's not just to facilitate uh, any unlawful activity. It's to facilitate the promotion. Management. Don't you think that the knowingly in this statute also requires that you are knowingly facilitating? It, it does require. Okay, so knowing. then this is the same thing here. But it doesn't have to be. Uh, it doesn't have to be that you have the purpose uh, of facilitating the seller. It's sufficient that you you know uh, that. Well, this doesn't mention. This statute didn't mention purpose either, did it? Well, it, it, it said intent and does not include the word knowledge. And the court uh, in the passage you just read uh, construed that to require an inquiry into the traveler's purpose. Um, and I, it's also significant. I that find it pretty close. I really do. I mean, the, the, well, one other difference, uh, then, Your Honor, is that the uh, facilitation that has to take place under the Travel Act is facilitation of the promotion, management, establishment, or carrying on of unlawful activity, which is defined not as a discrete uh, crime, but as a business enterprise uh, involving gambling. So you have a statute that's focused on sort of management or direction of an ongoing enterprise, whereas here, uh, under 843B, it's sufficient to facilitate a discrete act why are you going through all this uh, sort of parsing? I mean, I'm looking at the legislative history as well as the statute in 1970. Is it, what is your answer to the last point that they made, that what Congress wanted to do was to make simple possession a misdemeanor? That's why they changed the word, uh, which offense, to felony. That's why they changed the word felony to misdemeanor. And I can't imagine why else they amended the statute. And just because I was curious, I look it up, and that's why they amended it. Right? So, so I mean, the legislative history <laughs> makes that clear. So what you've done is figure out a way, the government's figured out a way, to do the opposite of what they want, to take people who simply possess and transform it into a felony. Now, what justification is there in the law for doing that? Well, I think there are a couple of answers to that. First is that Section 843B doesn't apply to people who simply possess. It applies to people who possess by using a phone to facilitate a felony distribution. And Congress, I mean, the, the very existence of the statute demonstrates that Congress thought that the use of a phone is a separate uh, element that introduces a distinct evil uh, that Congress wanted to combat. Uh, and a, as to the change in uh, the felony As to the first, I said subset. I didn't say you undermined the entire statute. I said you took a subset of people who simply possessed, and that subset you transformed into felons. Now, your response, I guess, is just what you said. Well, yes, and, 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 a second? and, and also that uh, the, the reason for the, uh, you know, as you note, that the predecessor to 843B, which was Section 1403, referred to uh, causing or facilitating any offense. All of the enumerated offenses uh, were felonies. Uh, in uh, 1970, they changed the word offense to the word uh, felony. Uh, but that part of the reason for that, I mean, there's no legislative history specifically addressing uh, the reason for that change. Uh, but part of the reason uh, we, we can infer is, is that the 1970 uh, statute created a whole host uh, of misdemeanors, of misdemeanor regulatory offenses under the Controlled Substances Act. Uh, one good example is uh, Section 829, which prohibits distributing a controlled substance uh, without a prescription. Um, and that's a offense, uh, that's a misdemeanor. Uh, and that could easily be caused or facilitated over the phone if somebody calls a pharmacist. And so that, uh, where both parties to the transaction are only engaging in a misdemeanor, uh, that's something that 843B would not apply to. But we do know that, that Congress drew a line that hadn't drawn before between own purpose users and people who are in the trafficking business. 
and it expressed sympathy for the or leniency, a policy of leniency. What the, the difference between the classification felony and misdemeanor is huge in terms of consequences for a person's life. So let's take um, the, the defendant in this case. If he becomes a felon rather than a misdemeanor, even if it's his first time and it's only one gram, he loses a lot of rights, doesn't he? Yes, yes, that, that, that's right. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I think one other change that Congress made uh, to uh, 843B in 1970 that's significant is that it eliminated the mandatory minimum. Uh, there was under yes, the but I'm speaking about the post consequences. Yeah, yes. Like, it, uh, let's take a, a young person. It has an effect on student loans, government loans. Yes. And it may be that in certain states voting rights are removed, and there is on this person's record forever that he is a felon. It just seems odd that Congress would have at the one and the same time, the same statute, say we want these to give these people a chance. And if they are in a rehabilitation program and they make it, they won't even get any charge, not even a misdemeanor charge. And then say, but a whole group of them are going to be treated just like traffickers if they use a telephone. It's hard. These two (laughs) seem to be working at odds with each other. So mustn't the court then try to reach some accommodation some harmonization of these two provisions, and it was suggested that we do that by saying facilitation, causing, in this context, means the same thing as aiding and abetting. Then we have the buyer-seller rule for the aider and abetter, and then we have made these two provisions harmonious. I I think the the buyer-seller principle and and the, the limitation on aiding and abetting and accessory liability that this Court recognized in Jabardi uh, doesn't apply here because the, the principle that the Court set out uh, in that case and that's been recognized uh, in, in subsequent cases is that, is that when Congress uh, criminalizes or, or punishes one party to a transaction that inevitably involves a second party, uh, the second party who is left unpunished by the statute doesn't get swept back in uh, under Section 2 as an aider and abetter. Uh, that principle doesn't apply here because although uh, the existence of a purchaser or a receiver of drugs uh, is an inevitable incident uh, of a distribution. The existence of a purchaser who uses a phone is not. Uh, the whole point of the statute is that the use of a phone is a separate and distinct element uh, that introduces uh, a, a different evil and that Congress wanted to combat that. Uh, I mean, the, the other, uh, other reason that well, aiding and abetting... the use of a phone in this statute is applied to the seller as well as to the buyer. I mean, it seems to me it is parallel. Use of a phone uh, to uh, uh, commit the offense by the seller. And you want us to uh, similarly sweep in uh, the facilitating of the offense by the use of the phone by the buyer. It seems to me pretty parallel to what we've done in the in the buyer-seller rule. Well, the, the, the statute, by its terms, makes clear that the person using the phone and the person committing the felony don't have to be the same uh, person. And I think I understood Petitioner to, to acknowledge that. Uh, the statute doesn't say knowingly or intentionally use a communication facility uh, in causing or facilitating his or her uh, commission uh, of a felony. Is there another example in the law, anywhere in the law, where, and there may be, I'm asking, uh, uh, you've come across, where we have an illegal business and there is a customer, and all the customer does is be a customer. And is there an example where just because he's a customer in a statutory provision that normally has a lesser penalty, all right, imagine those circumstances, you still can punish him as if he weren't, as if you ran the business? 
I'm, I'm not aware of any, and I don't think this I'm is not aware, and why should uh, this be the first? But, but uh, th this isn't one, because this isn't a, a case that punishes people just for being a customer. It's a case uh, — it's a statute that punishes people uh, for being a customer and facilitating the way it and a using a phone. The way they're a customer uh, is they use the telephone. And I guess uh, one side thinks that's not a big deal, uh, and the other side thinks that, anyway, in terms of what Congress thought, it's a tremendously big deal because Congress was really worried about telephones. Okay, that's possible. So, can you get a parallel that's like that? I mean, there, there are — there's a whole host of statutes that punish — What one comes I mean, the, the, the wire fraud statute punishes conduct that might not be a federal offense at all, but for the fact that's that somebody the jurisdictional, is That's the jurisdictional look. So, is, uh, what I'm looking for is there's a business and a customer. Statute punishes the business worse than the customer. Now, we get the customer as if he were a business participant. That's what I'm looking for, where it's the way he does it, i.e., whether he uses a telephone or whether he uses as a uh, telegram or uh, semaphore signals or uh, uh, where, the, where the means of communication here or something like that suddenly transform him. Anything else that comes to mind? I didn't expect there to be, but I just thought maybe you'd think of an analogy. Well, I mean, if it be helpful. I mean, as we, we identified on, on page 25 of our brief, a number of statutes where uh, the use of a communication facility is an element of the offense, and the conduct covered by those statutes in many cases you know, might not be uh, a federal offense at all. Probably car carrying of weapons, a lot of uh, statutes. Punish, punish more severely for carrying weapons. Right. Uh, and and I, I think, to be clear, this is not, I, I don't, th this is not a statute that uh, punishes people, but punishes customers as if they were distributors or, or uh, that aggravates uh, an underlying felony. This is a separate offense that has its own penalty. But, but it's uh, very it severe. Can you, can you tell me, how, how does it work? Uh, the district, uh, the, the United States attorney in one state, one district, um, has a case like this where there are four different phone calls, um, and he doesn't like the looks of the defendant, or for some reason he uh, he, he can charge him, and, the, and in the neighboring jurisdiction, the United States attorney does not. Are there guidelines? Or does the Department of Justice control this in each case, or is there some manual where we could see what the uh, uh, rules are for charging? Is it all at the discretion of the United States Attorney? Yeah, I, I'm not aware of a, anything in the U.S. Attorney's Manual that specifically addresses this statute. But, of course, the Court recognized in Batchelder that uh, prosecutors legitimately have discretion when there are you know, different criminal statutes. But what about the, the, conduct the, and the, the statement that in the manual, maybe this is incorrect, but that the charging policy of the Department of Justice instructs prosecutors to charge the most serious offense supported by the facts. And if that's true, then the assistant U.S. attorney would have no choice. The most serious offense is not the misdemeanor of simple possession, but it is the violation of 843B. Well, that, that's if they bring charges at all. And, of course, that policy doesn't require uh, prosecutors to, to, to bring charges. Well, now, uh, I think we know from this case that they're likely to bring charges. Well, the, I mean, I, the, is, that, is that the policy, first of all, yeah, yeah. That, that they're supposed to charge the most serious offense supported by the facts? Uh, yes. And, and, and so of that means in every one of these cases, whether the dealer picks up the phone or the buyer picks up the phone for a transaction for one gram of cocaine, the prosecutor has no choice but to indict under 843B. Well, again, if, if there is to be an indictment at all, there's no requirement that... I'm talking about the choice between misdemeanor, simple possession misdemeanor, or this 843, adding on this 843B. Right. That the prosecutor, if what I read is correct, has no discretion, has to if he makes a charge. He cannot make a simple misdemeanor charge. He has to charge the felony. That, that's my understanding of, of the policy, but uh, you know, th this court has recognized that you know, that sort of uh, charging decision uh, is a legitimate aspect uh, of the system as long as it's not exercised for unconstitutional reasons. No, but there's, uh, a, there's a difference here, and, and, and that is, as these cases illustrate, uh, three phone calls for one trifling sale, two for another, 
this gives a, a, a kind of uh, multiplier effect, which it's, it's, it's hard to find a parallel for in, in the law. Uh, we go from uh, a, a misdemeanor to 12 years, depending on the fact that there, there, were, there were a couple of cell phone calls. That, that is, maybe, maybe that is exactly what Congress intended, uh, and maybe that's good law enforcement policy, but those are not sort of too intuitively obvious positions. And I, I think the, the, the text of the statute and the fact that it covers any act uh, constituting a felony does demonstrate that that's what Congress well, intended. Well, I mean, what about that's the question? Of course, let's, let's feel sorry for, this, for the felon who's selling this stuff, too. I mean, the same thing's true of him, isn't it? Every yeah, time yeah. he makes another phone call, he gets socked with another how many years? It's a, the statutory maximum is four, but uh, again. Yeah, so, you know, four times four times four every time he makes a phone call. Right, and, and I think. Isn't the difference that he knows he's committing a felony uh, and the, uh, the, the possessor of a gram or less doesn't? The, the possessor uh, who, who purchases the drugs using his phone knows that he's uh, causing uh, the felony. I mean, that the reason he calls the drug dealer is because he wants to cause the, the dealer to send him uh, drugs. Or what about the legislative history? Because I would read it, and uh, in fact, what it seems to me that you're suggesting when you read the statute is using a telephone is because Justice Kennedy came up with a good example of what I was thinking of. If the buyer sits there with a gun, well, that's different. He shouldn't have the gun. And it's not surprising that he gets a higher sentence. And you're saying, by reading the text, you've discovered Congress thinks that cell phones are sort of like guns. Okay. I grant you somebody might have thought that. Justice Souter thinks it's not intuitively obvious. But is there any legislative history that suggests that that indeed is what people in Congress thought when they passed this statute? I'll read it, if there is. Yes. And And what should I read? Where, what, exactly? I mean, beyond, first of all, the, the... Congress has a traditional interest in keeping the channels of commerce and communication free from. Uh, uh, you're normally, where that is involved, I've learned, it's called what Jur- Justice Scalia called it, a jurisdictional hook. They don't think the underlying behavior is worse, but they believe there has to be a basis and should be a basis for federal prosecution. I started out where he was. I thought this is just a jurisdictional hook. But now you say, no, it isn't. It's much worse than that. It's like carrying a gun. Not quite as bad as that, but on that, in that direction. So I'm asking you, what would I read in this history to show that what you're claiming is right? Well, the, the, the legislative history of the 1956 Act, which is the, uh, where the predecessor statute, 1403, was, was enacted, uh, shows that Congress was concerned uh, with the ability of drug traffickers uh, and people engaging in drug transactions uh, to avoid detection by using the phone. And that's uh, what you, uh, you've cited that in the brief so I can find it. Yes, and, and, and the, the initial proposal uh, in the initial Senate bill uh, would have allowed wiretapping uh, in connection with drug investigations of certain enumerated offenses that covered both purchasers and sellers. Uh, that was uh, replaced with the provision that became uh, 1403, which also which applied to uh, causing or facilitating enumerated offenses, and again applied to both buyers and sellers. And, and that statute was applied uh, to buyers in a number of reported decisions uh, before 1970, and there's uh, nothing in the 1970 legislative history that Congress uh, intended to change that aspect. Uh, How does it work with the — I mean, I know your overall rationale about the ease of detection, easier to detect a face-to-face encounter on the streets. But here, I mean, we know that the government tapped the dealer's phone, and that's how the government got the list of the people who bought from the, the dealer. How common is it that, that, that either the buyer or the seller is the subject of a telephone tap? No, I, I, don't, I don't know the, the statistics on that, but certainly you know, a wiretap is only possible when the uh, demanding standards under Title III uh, are met, uh, and you know, whereas a, a face-to-face meeting can be observed by anybody who happens but what to be had, there. what had to be met in this case in order to put this tap on the dealer's phone? Well, uh, among other things, I, I believe the statute requires uh, some showing that it's not possible uh, to obtain uh, evidence in, in some other less intrusive way. 
so in this case, there was a, a wiretap on, on the dealer's phone. Uh, but they, in a lot of cases, uh, there's not going to be that. And certainly Congress, when it enacted the statute, uh, viewed uh, you know, keeping people from using the phones uh, to conceal their drug transactions uh, as one way of minimizing the need for um, more intrusive measures uh, like wiretapping. So you would interpret Congress now when I get in getting away from 56 when simple possession was a felony to 70 when simple possession becomes a misdemeanor. And you're, you're saying that Congress meant to relegate the simple possessor to misdemeanor status, but only if the encounter was face-to-face. So you're reading into the what Congress did to sh- sharply distinguish between traffickers and users and say, but that was only taking 843B into account, that is that benefit that you're not going to be a felon, you're going to be a misdemeanor. It's only for face-to-face transactions. Well, it's, I mean, it, it doesn't apply when, when a communication facility is used. It also doesn't apply I mean, in a number of other uh, contexts that you know, Petitioner uh, acknowledges. But I'm talking about this context, the purchase of one gram of cocaine on one occasion, nothing more. As a first offense. I mean, that, so that, that, Congress's design was we treat as a less grave offender the buyer for his own use, but only if he buys in a face-to-face encounter. That's what, what you would have to read, the, the, you, the, you would have to limit the line Congress drew between traffickers on the one hand, possessors for their own use on the other, and say it applies only if the drug is purchased in a face-to-face encounter. Yes, although I, I wouldn't describe it as a, an issue of a, a less grave offense or a more grave offense in the sense that uh, the use of the phone aggravates uh, the offense of possession. Well, I mean, use of the phone is a, is a is different the difference between being labeled a misdemeanor and being labeled a felon. It's an enormous difference. Th- that, that's right. Uh, but Congress, again, did recognize that there could be uh, a, a range of levels of culpability associated with the 843B offense, uh, which is, is part of the reason that it eliminated uh, the mandatory minimum uh, when it amended the statute in 1970, uh, suggesting that there could be different kinds of conduct uh, that would satisfy it. Mr. Mr. Miller, in, in answer to one of Justice Breyer's earlier questions, he, he had, the premise of his question was the the effect of the of the twin amendments uh, from offense to felony uh, and from felony to misdemeanor for possession of small quantities, uh, and he said, "Well, in effect, is is, is that uh, combination of amendments really being rendered nugatory by the, the view that you take of, of the statute?" And you said, "Not necessarily." And you you said there may be some drug transactions in which it is a misdemeanor on both sides, uh, so that the the statute would apply there. Uh, are there any other are there are there many examples of that? I, I thought not. And are there any other examples of misdemeanor misdemeanor cases uh, that the uh, that the statute would apply to, so that so that the the anomaly wouldn't be quite so obvious? I mean, the, the if you're asking other misdemeanor offenses under the Controlled Substances Act, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, there's the, the how, in other words, how important is this? It, it looks to us. I mean, I think it was the premise of the question, and it was it was my assumption coming in that your view of the statute largely renders those two amendments or the, effect, the combined effect of those two amendments uh, virtually nugatory. And you said, well, not necessarily, because there may be misdemeanor misdemeanor cases. And I want to know how many of them there are. Uh, is, is that really a significant area for the application uh, or non-application of the statute? I, I don't know how many prosecutions are brought under those statutes. I imagine that, uh, in part because they are misdemeanors, uh, not a lot of prosecutions. How many separate, how many misdemeanor, misdemeanor uh, uh, combined offenses are there under, under the uh, code? Uh, 842, uh, uh, Section 842 enumerates, uh, I think it's on the order of a dozen or so, uh, and then we cite a couple of them uh, in our brief. Uh, so distributing a, uh, a controlled uh, prescription drug without a prescription would probably be one of the most common okay. uh, that someone would engage in. But you, you, you don't have any figures on the number of actual prosecutions under under the in uh, in, in the misdemeanor misdemeanor combination cases. Uh, no, I mean I, again because uh, 
because they're misdemeanors and, and prosecutorial resources are probably concentrated on uh, the more serious uh, felony violations of the Controlled Substances Would, Act. I suspect there aren't a lot of uh, prosecutions. So, uh, well, then I guess that, that leads to, to my last question, and that is, isn't it probably true that if we accept your view of the statute, then the effect of those two combined amendments, uh, uh, offense to, to felony, uh, uh, felony to misdemeanor for small quantities, uh, uh, the, the, the combined effect of, of, of those two statutes uh, is, in effect, rendered <clears throat> worthless in, in most cases, in well, the substantial number of cases to which uh, the, the uh, communication facility statute would be applied. It, it will render uh, those, those two amendments, in effect, worthless. Well, well, I think the, the relevant inquiry is what, uh, what did Congress in, intend in 1970 when it uh, changed That the, may be the that, relevant inquiry, but what about my irrelevant inquiry? Well, I, I, uh, it's, it's going to — your, your, your view of the statute is going to render those two amendments uh, virtually dead letters. I mean, I, 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 think, I think from the perspective of, of Congress uh, that there was no — they wouldn't have anticipated uh, that the amendment would not have any consequence. Uh, I mean, the, the fact that they, they created uh, this whole set of misdemeanors, uh, the fact that they aren't yeah, violated but it, very often. Said, I mean, as that, you said, the, 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 you, you don't have figures on the number of prosecutions. <coughs> and the number of prosecutions under those misdemeanors is distinct from the number of applications of the communication statute to conventional buyer-seller transactions. <coughs> is probably the difference between a very small set and a very large set of cases. And in the very large set of cases, the two amendments are being rendered, in effect, worthless. Isn't that true? If I, if I may, my answer, my, my understanding is that the number of prosecutions under 843B uh, is also relatively small, uh, but I don't have uh, precise figures on, on the comparative numbers. Thank you, Council. Uh, four minutes, Mr. Srinivasan. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The only point I'd make in closing, unless the Court has further questions for us, is that we think the statutory text, the statutory history, and the context all weigh in favor of our reading. But even if there's any ambiguity on the matter, principles of lenity would squarely apply and foreclose an interpretation that converts someone who's a misdemeanor into someone who is exposed to multiple felony counts carrying substantial criminal May I ask you this question? It's just a matter of history. Um, is it perfectly clear, I think you said, that the, the, the uh, presence of the use of the telephone was not just a jurisdictional hook? Because it, back in 1970, the federal government really wasn't in the criminal law business the way it has become in the last 30 or 40 years. At that time, there was a lot of concern in the Travel Act and other statutes about exactly what the federal justification for, justification for federal participation uh, existed, and I, I always had the impression that th that that was really what was behind the telephone uh, aspect of the statute. I, I don't think so, Justice Stevens, because as of 1970, there were already underlying drug laws that barred distribution, that barred receipt of drugs, and that barred most of the activities that are now pro prohibited under the drug laws. And the telephone law presupposes that one of those underlying acts is already going on. And so to the extent that there was jurisdiction over those underlying acts, which presumably there was since the statutes were on the books, the Telephone Act wasn't necessary to create jurisdiction. Could I ask you this question? I, I understand your argument regarding statutory history and the harsh consequences of this. But as far as the buyer-seller rule, Gabardi and Ruiz are concerned, what if the statute said uh, made it a crime for a, for a person to use a machine gun in facilitating the commission of a felony. Would you say — you would have to say that the buyer-seller rule and those authorities would mean that that person could not be prosecuted if they were using the machine gun to facilitate a, a purchase for personal use. Would you not? Well, I think the, the use of the machine gun wouldn't come within the buyer-seller rule because what the buyer-seller rule deals with is a substantive prohibition on distribution. And the, the presumption is that when Congress prohibits distribution, it knows that there's also a receiver of the banned substance. And by virtue of excluding that receiver from the distribution prohibition, it wouldn't have wanted to bring that receiver back within the fold of the statute. Right, but aren't that wouldn't the two apply. Cases, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't think that would apply with somebody who's using a machine gun, because 
the person who's using a machine gun isn't necessarily part of the distribution offense to begin with. And so the buyer-seller principle would apply with respect to the underlying purchase of drugs, if that were an issue. But if you tack on use of a machine gun, I don't think the buyer-seller principle would speak directly to that. Well, I don't, I don't see the difference between use of the phone to facilitate, use of the phone in facilitating, use of a, of a firearm in facilitating. Unless oh. you can say that the, the use of a communication facility in effecting the purchase is such a, uh, a virtually indispensable element of the purchase that it, it, it's swept up within it. Oh, no, I'm sorry, uh, Justice Alito. If the, the hypothetical statute barred use of a phone in facilitating a drug felony, if it was precisely parallel to this one, then we make the same argument. But it's not because the use of a machine gun falls within the buyer-seller principle. It's because the underlying act of purchasing drugs falls within the buyer-seller principle. And if the prohibition is on use of a machine gun in some underlying act, then you have to look at the underlying act. And the underlying act is governed by the buyer-seller principle, and buyers fall outside of it. And so a use of a machine gun by someone who's already outside of the act wouldn't bring the buyer back. So the, the answer is that this, it would be the same. It would be buyer, the same. The buyer-seller rule would apply, in your view, exactly the same way. If, this, if the statute, if I understand your hypothetical correctly, if the statute were use of a phone in facilitating a drug felony. But there could be a, a separate crime, use of a machine gun in the facilitating in facilitating a crime, any crime. That could, could be. Sure. If, if that were the case, then it would be different. My, if, if I could just finish quickly, Mr. Chief Justice. My, my only point is that if the theory of prosecution were that a person comes within the fold of the statute because they're buying drugs, and that buying of drugs facilitates the sale of drugs, and therefore they are someone who uses a machine gun in facilitating the sale of drugs, well, then the buyer-seller rule would kick in because the in initial predicate of that theory, which is that the person is facilitating the sale by buying, wouldn't work. They'd fall outside of the statute at that stage. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.